Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Tiffany Meyer and here are today's top stories. An ambulance struck in the Gaza Strip. What Israel says about the incident as the U.S. Secretary of State addresses civilian casualties with Israeli leaders. A rising death toll in the Israel-Hamas war now leading some Democrats to become critical of actions by the Israeli military. How their colleagues are reacting to these comments. President Biden joins communities in Maine to pay tribute to the victims of last week's shooting. The president also took the chance to call for gun laws. Eric Trump finishes testifying, but afterwards he makes comments about Attorney General Letitia James. What, he said, and when will his father take the stand? And with the third Republican presidential debate just around the corner, NTD speaks to candidate Vivek Ramaswamy about Trump, China, and the Israel-Hamas war. In the Israel-Hamas war, an ambulance from the main hospital in Gaza was struck. Palestinian sources say it left several people dead. NTD's Jason Perry has the details. And a warning, this report contains footage that some viewers may find disturbing. On Friday, another deadly scene shook the streets of Gaza City as crowds of people were seen running in all directions. This time, an ambulance was struck. A spokesperson for the Hamas-run health ministry blamed Israel. We announced to the world that this convoy is heading to the south at 4 o'clock, and we informed the related parties, including the International Red Cross, and we asked the Red Cross to escort the convoy. But Israel Defense Forces did not deny responsibility for striking the ambulance. The IDF released this statement on Telegram. An IDF aircraft struck an ambulance that was identified by forces as being used by a Hamas terrorist cell in close proximity to their position in the battle zone. A number of Hamas terrorist operatives were killed in the strike. We have information which demonstrates that Hamas's method of operation is to transfer terror operatives and weapons in ambulances. The IDF also emphasized that the area is a battle zone and civilians are repeatedly called upon to evacuate south for their own safety. But even after the IDF's repeated warnings, Palestinian civilians still remain in the area. Secretary of State Antony Blinken flew to Israel on Thursday to speak with Israeli leadership about the issue of civilian casualties. And he also noted that Hamas uses civilians as human shields. We provided Israel advice that only the best of friends can offer on how to minimize civilian deaths while still achieving its objectives of finding and finishing Hamas terrorists and their infrastructure of violence. The IDF previously reported that Hamas headquarters are located beneath hospitals, including this one at Al-Shifa Hospital. On Friday, the IDF released a recorded conversation of an official in the Gaza healthcare system, also mentioning Al-Shifa Hospital. The official went on to say that if he tries to take fuel to the hospital, Hamas will take it. Jason Perry, NTD News. In the Israel-Hamas war, Hamas-controlled information sources report over 9,000 Palestinians have been killed. It's unclear how many are terrorists and how many are civilians. 
Some Democrats who traditionally stand with Israel are now voicing criticism about the Israeli military's operations. NTD's Melina Weiskup has the story. More Democrats are voicing concerns about the way the Israeli military is approaching their objective to wipe out Hamas after the terrorist group launched an attack on Israeli civilians. Senator Chris Murphy, who sits on a Middle East subcommittee, said in a statement, the current rate of civilian death inside Gaza is unacceptable and unsustainable. I urge Israel to immediately reconsider its approach and shift to a more deliberate and proportionate counterterrorism campaign. Congressman Jason Crow has also expressed concerns about an Israeli strike aimed at taking out a Hamas military leader. This mission killed civilians in a highly populated refugee camp, which Hamas had dug tunnels under. And we asked lawmakers how they feel about their colleagues criticizing Israel's military operations. We did get mixed reactions, but the vast majority of Democrats that we heard from said that others should be more thoughtful about the specific details in this war. Contrary to the rules of war, uh, they've hidden behind the Palestinian people. They've embedded themselves in hospitals and churches uh, in order to create uh, an inability uh, of Israel to get at their enemy, Hamas. You know, Israel needs to be careful, obviously, about, you know, going after one commander by taking out a whole building. That's something they do have to, the, they do have to look at. And so I, I agree with Jason that that one, you know, could be problematic. But again, that's what happens in war. That's why this was this was this was so outrageous what Hamas did to those innocent civilians in Israel. President Biden in recent days has called for a pause in fighting to get humanitarian aid into Gaza, though U.S. authorities have maintained that a ceasefire would only benefit Hamas. Now Israel President Benjamin Netanyahu said there would be no ceasefire with Hamas until the more than 240 Israeli and foreign national hostages are safe. Reporting from Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. President Biden today joining residents in Lewiston, Maine, to mourn the loss of 18 lives taken by a gunman. It's now been more than a week after the deadly shooting. Watch. You know, as we mourn today in Maine, this tragedy opens a painful, painful wounds all across the country. Too many Americans have lost loved ones or survived the trauma of gun violence. The address was given at the bowling alley where one of the shootings took place. There, President Biden also called for more gun control. The president, along with the first lady, also met with survivors, the victims' families and first responders. Eric Trump concludes his testimony. He said he wouldn't sign anything that wasn't accurate. The judge has ruled that he and others fraudulently inflated the value of his father's assets. Our legal correspondent Arlene Richards finds out why he signed documents that the judge believes are fraudulent. Eric Trump is finished testifying, but he didn't leave the stand until after the state confronted him with evidence that he signed off on estimates of some of his father's properties. The state is trying to establish that Donald Trump's second son was involved in a scheme to inflate the value of his father's assets. The younger Trump said he relied on his accountants and attorneys to ensure those estimates were accurate. Judge Arthur Ngoron has already ruled that the senior Trump and his two sons fraudulently inflated those assets to win favorable terms from lenders and insurers. 
Outside of the courtroom, Eric blasted Attorney General Letitia James. And the witch hunt that this woman is under, the witch hunt that this person is under, the MFR for political purposes, is disgusting. He told reporters later that James should be an advocate for businesses like Trump's. She should be an advocate for businesses that pay a lot of taxes and do great things and meet their commitments and pay off their debts. He said she should not advocate for Deutsche Bank. She should also go out and fight for the little guys as opposed to trying to be an advocate of Deutsche Bank, who literally loves us, who said we have done absolutely nothing wrong. He said Deutsche Bank made hundreds of millions of dollars from doing business with Trump, something the judge has not disputed. But the focus of this trial is on how much more money the bank could have made if not for the fraud. Eric said the truth will come out. We haven't done a single thing wrong. They're trying to disqualify my father for 2024. He's leading in all the polls. His father posted two words on social media, election interference. Judge and Goron adjourned court for the day after asking the state who they plan to call to the stand on Monday. The AG's attorney said the only witness will be Donald J. Trump. Arlene Richards, NTD News. After the judge adjourned for the day, he took care of one last housekeeping matter. He imposed a partial gag order on members of former President Trump's legal team. This comes after he said on Thursday that they made on the record repeated inappropriate remarks about his principal law clerk. A former Trump administration official was sentenced today to 70 months in prison for his role in the January 6th Capitol breach. Federico Klein was appointed by former President Trump to serve in the State Department. He was found guilty this summer on several felony counts, including assaulting multiple police officers. Klein's lawyer said his client's actions on January 6th were part of attending a, quote, protest turned wrong. Similar to former President Trump in 2016, Vivek Ramaswamy is coming into this race as a political outsider. NTD's Ruby Lovell had the chance to speak with him at a campaign event. Here are the highlights from that conversation. You have always been very, very open about the fact that you're a loyal defender of Trump. Um, you have also concurred with him in many of his positions and policies. What differentiates you and why should people vote for you rather than Trump then? I think the main reason is that I am from the next generation and I can take the America First movement to the next level because I have fresh legs, because I haven't yet been wounded in that war. I also have taken on bureaucracies, so I'm not coming at this with no experience. I've been a successful businessman. I built, I've challenged the bureaucracies from Big Pharma to the ESG cartel in the asset management industry. Now I'm just taking on the biggest one of all, that's the bureaucracy in the federal government. I think we're getting dangerously close to World War III, closer than we have been in my lifetime. And how would you handle that? What are the policies that you would put into place to avoid that? Well, look, I think that we should not advance conflicts that don't relate to the U.S. national interest. In Ukraine, we are driving Russia further into China's hands, and the Russia-China military alliance is the single greatest threat that we face as Americans. I've been crystal clear, and here's why China will not invade Taiwan on my watch as president. I have said what other candidates won't. We will defend Taiwan at least until we get semiconductor independence in this country, at which point we resume the current posture of strategic ambiguity. So there's no way China's gonna invade Taiwan for the foreseeable future on my watch. Here's how I think we can help Israel the most. Give them a diplomatic iron dome that gives Israel an absolute right to its national self-defense 
without being second-guessed by, by the UN, by the US, by Europe, or otherwise. Keep our pre-existing commitment to Israel, about 3 to $3.8 billion of annual military aid that we've been giving, and we should continue to keep our commitment to Israel until the day they tell us they don't need that anymore. In the polls, Ramaswamy is currently at fourth place among Republican candidates. That's according to 538, which looks at a number of polls and calculates the average for each candidate. Former President Trump is still clearly leading the field. His average is at almost 60 percent as of today. Far behind on second place of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis was just over 12 percent. Ramaswamy has over 5% at the moment. And you can watch our full interview with the entrepreneur at NTD.com. Coming up, Amazon founder Jeff Bezos is moving from Seattle to Miami. We look at how Bezos' mindset transformed a small business into a trillion-dollar company. Is the U.S. labor market showing signs of a slowdown? NTD's business host Don Ma will join us with more about today's employment numbers. And California's Silicon Valley is using license plate readers to stop retail theft and catch criminals. Some like the effectiveness, while others express privacy concerns. We'll explore the technology after the break. Welcome back. Amazon founder Jeff Bezos is moving from Seattle to Miami, away from the city where he started Amazon. We took a look at Amazon's humble beginnings and why Bezos is moving. NTD's Faye Quarter has more. Amazon founder Jeff Bezos is moving from Seattle, the birthplace of Amazon, to Miami. On Instagram, Bezos says he's moving because his parents are in Miami, because he and his fiance, Lauren Sanchez, both love Miami. And because Blue Origin, Bezos' space exploration company, is moving much of its operations to Cape Canaveral, Florida. Bezos says this move has been an emotional decision for him. He showed this 30-second video of his younger self in Seattle. This is the uh, first office of Amazon.com Inc. And uh, over here, this is my desk here. And that's the uh, fax machine, as you can see there. See this big orange uh, extension cord? This is one of the contraptions we have to have because there's not enough power in this room. Uh, so we have to bring in some extra circuit breakers. And uh, so that's about it. So it doesn't take long to tour the offices of Amazon.com Inc. Bezos founded Amazon in Seattle back in 1994. He started by selling books because he thought that would be the easiest thing to sell on the internet. Amazon had humble beginnings. He and uh, someone else were taking books and putting them into packages, and they were on the floor. And Bezos made the comment that well, we've got to get knee pads because my knees are killing me being on the floor. And the other uh, person there who was helping said, actually, we need packing tables. We need tables where we can stand. Steve Anderson is the author of The Bezos Letters, an examination of Bezos's letters to shareholders. Anderson says when the early Amazon employees needed a desk, Bezos would buy a door and attach four pieces of wood for legs. The door desk design is still commonly seen in Amazon offices today, and Amazon now has a market capitalization of over $1.4 trillion. Obsessing over customers. And if I could point to one thing that made Amazon different, it would be that aspect of it. And 
inventing on behalf of the customer. Anderson believes this mindset is what led Amazon to invent one-click purchasing, which revolutionized e-commerce. Bezos is now shifting his attention towards space exploration with the move to Florida. I'm so excited for Jeff Bezos to come to Florida. Unbelievably excited. As more of these ultra-wealthy continue to come into Florida, we're getting more culture, we're getting you know things like uh, the quality of uh, the opera, the ballet, uh, sports, all of these things are improving. Floridian Peter Gray is glad Bezos is moving. As a real estate professional, Gray says it'll help the real estate market there, too. Bezos is likely to move into his recently purchased mansion in Indian Creek. He bought the property last month for $79 million. The seven-bedroom, 19,000-square-foot mansion is located in a private, guard-gated community. Faye Quarter, NTD News. The U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics released its latest employment report earlier today. According to the data, the U.S. economy added 150,000 jobs in October, which is less than expected. NTD business host Don Ma talks to a labor market economist for more insight on the report. And now here with me is the chief economist at the online job platform ZipRecruiter, Julia Pollock. So, Julia, 150,000 jobs added. Um, to start off, what is the sentiment right now around this number? Well, this number is lower than most people expected. And you know, even if you account for the fact that UAW workers were on strike during this period, even if you pop those 25,000 workers back in, this is still a meaningful slowdown in the labor market. And the household survey is even more concerning with a large increase in unemployment for young workers, an uptick in the overall rate, an increase in the U6 broader unemployment measure of underutilized labor uh, that shows that workers are increasingly unemployed and underemployed. So last month we got a bit of, of a higher number, uh, this month a bit lower. So, I mean, are we on a trajectory? Is it, is it clear as of right now that the labor market is cooling down? Yes, I think it's uh, sort of indisputable in this report. Every single key indicator of demand for labor weakened. Uh, the number of working hours and overtime hours fell. Wage growth cooled. It's really quite low at the moment. Over just the past quarter of the last three months, uh, wage growth has come in at an annualized 3.2% rate. That's very, very low. 3.5% would be consistent with 2% inflation. Um, and given how uh, quickly productivity is growing, workers really are going to want to see stronger wage gains. Um, these real wage declines are causing real disposable income declines. That's going to put pressure on consumer spending and could put further pressure on the labor market in the coming months. And speaking of unemployment, uh, the rate ticked up a tenth of a percent last month. I, I mean, uh, one month in increase doesn't make a trend, but is there any reason uh, to worry that it could become a trend? Definitely. Uh, the diffusion index fell quite substantially from 61.4% to 52%. That's a meaningful narrowing in uh, job growth. And typically before job growth falls across the board, it falls in specific sectors. And then there's sort of a ripple effect into other industries as well. So a narrowing in job growth should be cause for concern. The manufacturing diffusion index, so the measure of the breadth of job gains in manufacturing, actually was below 50. Uh, it went all the way to 42. It dips well below 50, um, which suggests that there are more manufacturing 
industries, sub-industries, losing jobs than gaining jobs right now. Should we have any comfort in knowing that perhaps if the unemployment rate uh, gets too high, uh, perhaps the Federal Reserve may consider cutting rates and then that could potentially give a boost uh, to the rate there. What are your thoughts here in, on this dynamic? Absolutely. So I think we should take enormous comfort from the fact that this slowdown is not taking place because of any real fundamental weaknesses on balance sheets of businesses or households. It is purely an orchestrated slowdown uh, by the Fed. And so if rate hikes end, if uh, the Fed starts cutting rates next year, we will likely see not just a stock market rally, as we're already seeing today on, on the expectation that that could happen, um, but we'll see hiring unleashed as well. All right. Thank you so much, as always. Julia Pollack. Thank you. License plate readers to catch criminals. Cities like San Jose, California, have been rolling out the new tech to combat retail and auto theft. But critics cite privacy concerns. NTD's David Lamb reports. Law enforcement and city officials have had enough, and they believe perpetrators shouldn't have a license to steal. So enter technology. It reads license plate numbers and converts them to text format. And if there's a match with a plate from a wanted hot list, law enforcement is alerted. Silicon Valley's San Jose implemented automatic license plate readers, ALPRs, throughout the city in October, near top spots like intersections and malls. It's been incredibly useful as a tool for our police department to do investigations of catalytic converter theft, smash and grab robberies, home burglaries, all kinds of crime. There are success stories. Local police said in September, ALPRs helped officers with incidents related to stolen vehicles, narcotic-related cases, and approximately 60 vehicle break-ins. Though critics of the new tech fear privacy concerns and how the data could be used. I generally don't like uh, cameras and when I walk by. The nonprofit Electronic Frontier Foundation reports that 71 law enforcement agencies in California are sharing data with partners in other states. But the mayor of the biggest city in Northern California's Bay Area says This is just still photos of license plate numbers on vehicles in our city used by our police department to do follow-up investigations of, of crimes that have been reported within the city of San Jose. So it's very limited and the data is deleted on a regular basis. State Attorney General Rob Bonta reminded officials about laws on data collection, storage and sharing. Bonta said, while this technology may be a helpful investigative tool, Californians must be able to trust that their information is being kept safe. With technology like license plate readers, police are able to crack down on crime in reducing vehicle theft break-ins and catching perpetrators. But there is some public distrust in having surveillance, especially with advancement of AI. One pedestrian told me that what if there's a leak in the database and what happens to people's information? In San Jose, California, David Lamb, NTD News. Coming up, could an idea from the finance world save the new House Speaker? What the latter plan is all about and how it may help prevent a government shutdown. And look forward to an extra hour of sleep on Sunday as daylight saving time ends. But the time change can be difficult. We have tips from a doctor on how to cope with the transition when we come back.
Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some today's top headlines. Chaos in the Gaza Strip. An Israeli airstrike hits an ambulance from a major hospital. Israel's defense forces said that Hamas was using the vehicle to transport terrorists. Eric Trump today concluding his testimony in the ongoing New York civil fraud trial. He said he relied on his accountants to ensure that financial statements were accurate. He later blasted Attorney General Letitia James outside the courthouse. President Biden joined locals in Maine to pay tribute to the victims of last week's shooting. He also urged Congress to pass what he calls common sense gun reform. The new House Speaker has some new ideas for getting business done in the House. The biggest question right now, how to avoid a shutdown on November 17th. One, one idea that was pitched this morning, to be very frank with you, is a, um, a, a laddered CR. Um, I'll unpack for you what that means here in the, in the coming days, but uh, potentially that, that you would do a CR that extends uh, individual pieces of the appropriations uh, process, individual bills. We'll see how that goes. I think we can. CR means continuing resolution. It allows the government to keep spending at current levels while lawmakers hash out the new budget. A laddered CR would stagger the deadlines for the different aspects of the budget. In total, there are 12 different bills. This could be a lifesaver for Johnson, avoiding both a shutdown and the sort of stopgap measure that some in his conference don't like. Is Speaker Johnson's plan for a laddered CR feasible? And would his colleagues go for it? We spoke with a reporter for the Epic Times who's been following the developments. Lawrence Wilson, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. My pleasure as always. Lawrence, we're now in November and the government shutdown is approaching once again. Now, Speaker Johnson has proposed a novel idea of a laddered continuing resolution. What is this? Well, a continuing resolution, of course, is uh, a piece of legislation that allows the government to extend the previous year's funding so they can cover any gap before they get the next year's funding or spending bills lined up. Now, this laddered CR is an idea that is apparently is very common in the financial world. A financial uh, researcher, Peter C. Earle of the American Institute for Economic Research said, in finance, they do this all the time. It's basically a series of cascading deadlines or payout uh, times. So applied to the CR, it would just take the 12 uh, spending bills that are required each year and stagger the deadlines so that instead of them all expiring on the same day, then this would kind of create a little bit of a lag between each one. Theoretically, it would allow Congress to work on one bill at a time and not have a big crisis where all the money is going to run out on the same day. I want to expand on that. So as you mentioned, there are 12 appropriation bills that need to be passed. Why is Speaker Johnson using this laddered approach? Is it just buying time or what's the purpose here? Well, to be clear, he's not using it yet. He's kind of floating the idea, suggesting it. But he's kind of in a bind here because uh, there was one 45-day continuing resolution that went through on the last day of September. Now, that's going to expire. And then they'll be right up against uh, a government shutdown unless they can get all 12 bills passed. Well, that's not seeming likely at this point. Um, and it's either you've got to then 
come up with another way to keep the government funded or face a government shutdown. And neither option is really good if you're the speaker. Uh, some people are saying, yeah, let the government shut down. It's not that big a deal. It only affects uh, non-vital services anyway. But that means a lot of people go without a paycheck, so it's politically unpopular. So he's trying to bridge the gap. Not a full-fledged CR, which some Republicans don't like, but we avoid the shutdown. Hmm. And as you mentioned, citing Peter Earl over there, that is common in the financial world. But what are experts saying about this idea of a laddered approach in politics? Would it work? Well, theoretically, yes. But nobody that I talked to had ever heard of it before in that context, that is, in terms of government spending. What it would do is create basically 12 deadlines for bills instead of one. That could be a good thing. It spreads them out. Or it could mean that you just have 12 mini crises as each one comes up for expiration and they haven't finished it yet. So it's not really clear how well it would work. And the Senate would have to buy into it, too. The speaker says he thinks he can get consensus among House Republicans for it. But it's just not clear if it's actually going to be workable. Hmm. And the current CR has about, well, actually 14 days before it expires. So what is the status of the spending legislation right now? Well, in the House, they have passed seven of the required bills and one more expected to be passed probably today. Those together would account for 85 percent of the spending that the House plans to do. Now, the Senate has only passed three bills. Ideally, they each pass their version of 12. They get together in a conference committee and work out the differences between them. But there's just not much time left for all that to happen. Uh, speaker still wants to get his 12 bills done by the end of next week. But beyond that, it looks like we're either facing some fight over a continuing resolution or we'll be right up against a possible government shutdown again. That sounds like it's a race against time. And as you mentioned, the Senate still has to weigh in. Well, Lawrence Wilson, thank you so much for your time. Don't forget to fall back this weekend. Daylight savings time officially ends on Sunday at 2 a.m. The time change can be challenging for some, especially those who have Alzheimer's disease or dementia. Here's more on how to ease the transition. It's time to fall back, but the changing time can create confusion called sundowning among those who have dementia or Alzheimer's disease. They have a lot of damage to their brain, so their brain is not working as well as it used to. Sundowning symptoms can include difficulty sleeping, anxiety, agitation, hallucinations, pacing, and disorientation, says Dr. Douglas Shari with Ohio State's Wexner Medical Center. You have less sensory input when the sun goes down. This is what the sundowning term refers to. When the sun goes down, things get darker. There are more shadows. You can't interpret or process as well as you used to. There are ways caregivers can help. Shari says to keep a predictable routine. Go to bed, get up, and eat at the same times each day. Next, plan activities during the morning and early afternoon so they'll be sleepy at night. Limit daytime napping, caffeine, and sugar. Turn on a nightlight to help reduce agitation that may happen when it's dark. And make sure hearing aids and glasses are close by to avoid additional symptoms 
sensory deprivation. If sleep isn't coming easy, talk to a doctor about ways to help get those Zs, like the use of melatonin. If the caregiver is not getting good rest because the patient's up all night, then uh, subsequently the patient may not be getting the best uh, care um, you know, from a sleep-deprived caregiver. Coming up, California voters to decide on sports betting. The push for its legalization has become a debate among tribal groups in the state. And in baseball news, the viewers, or lack thereof, have spoken. We'll have what made this year's fall classic so unattractive when we return. Welcome back on the 2024 ballot. Can California voters may get another chance to decide on legalized sports betting. NTD's Christina Corona has details. Documents filed last week would enable the California governor to negotiate agreements with Native American tribes for both in-person and online sports wagering. Two ballot initiatives have been proposed with the Tribal Gaming Protection Act and sports wagering regulation creating the framework. To qualify for the November 2024 ballot, both initiatives must collect 875,000 signatures within 180 days. Both of the new initiatives have tribal in their names, but it appears that California's Native American tribes are not directly involved, causing frustration among tribal representatives. These initiatives were introduced by Reeve Collins, a CEO for an online gaming platform, and Ryan Tyler Walls, a founder of an online gaming and money company, although they haven't publicly made a comment. The California Nation's Indian Gaming Association said in a statement, decisions driving the future of tribal governments should be made by tribal governments. They go on to say, while the sponsors of these initiatives may believe they know what is best for the tribes, we encourage them to engage with Indian country and ask rather than dictate. In 2022, most tribes opposed Proposition 27, an online gambling measure, as it threatens casino-owning tribes' finances. A few casino-less tribes support it to combat poverty. Meanwhile, ESPN is entering the sports betting arena with the launch of ESPN Bet, as announced by its parent company, Walt Disney Company. This move comes as Penn Entertainment transforms its Barstool Sportsbook into ESPN Bet, following a $2 billion deal inked in August. The app is set to officially debut on November 14th. ESPN Bet is set to go live in 17 states upon its initial launch date, pending final approvals. Christina Corona, NTD News, California. And in more sports news, we welcome NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, the first college football playoff rankings came out this week and will come out each week until the regular season ends in a month or so. Now, if only the final rankings dictates the postseason, what's the significance of the rest of these? <laughs> There's really no significance at all. Uh, to me, these are a bit of a waste of time. You know, when they first announced they would do this years ago, they said they would, they would um, release these rankings like six weeks in advance. Uh, but they've shown that these rankings are very fickle. You know, if they have one team ahead of the other one week, they might flip-flop them the next week, which they should do, but it invalidates all the ones except for the final one. I mean, take 2014. TCU was third on the next last poll. They go out and beat Iowa State by 50 points, and they somehow fall to sixth because they put 
Ohio State and Baylor ahead of them after they had they had big wins. So I think really all it does is gets media like me and you to talk about it. And uh, shifting gears to baseball, Texas won the World Series this week, though few people tuned in to watch. It was the lowest rated fall classic on record. Can this all be blamed on Arizona's lack of stars? Yeah, I, th I think that's certainly a big part of it. I mean, they were only an average team in the regular season. They certainly caught fire in the postseason. Now, Texas was at least a very good team in the regular season. They had some star power, Max Scherzer, Marcus Seaman, uh, Corey Seager. Also, Arizona really doesn't have a big fan base yet. They're the youngest franchise still. Um, I think you could also say that Texas' lack of historical success uh, was part of it. They go back to 1961, and this was just their first World Series championship. And if the TV networks had their choice, what matchup do you think they'd want to see? Probably Dodgers-Yankees. I mean, they're the two oldest and most successful franchises out there. Plus, they're in the biggest media markets, L.A. and New York. Uh, plus, they're rivals from the time when the Dodgers were in Brooklyn. Now, outside of those two teams and of just the teams in the playoffs, I think Philadelphia and Atlanta, they had big stars. They have big fan bases. In the AL, I think they would have taken Houston over anyone. Houston's won two recent World Series. Plus, they won in 2017 when they beat the Dodgers. If they had a rematch of that, Houston was sanctioned for sign stealing, uh, but MLB did not make them give up their title. I think that rankled fans, as well as other teams the wrong way, I think a rematch of those two teams would have got a lot of viewers as well. Mm. And now moving on to NBA news, James Harden was dealt to the LA Clippers in a blockbuster trade this week that gives them at least three all-star caliber players. Do you see this as comparable to some big threes of the past, like in Miami or Boston? Uh, not quite. You know, Boston's big three had a power forward, a small forward, and guard. Ditto for Miami. Clear roles. They won titles with those teams. But the Clippers, you basically have three wing players, so I think there's an issue of fit. Now, if, if you're the Clippers, though, you pretty much had to do this. Your stars are in their 30s. They've been injury prone. The, the clock is ticking. If they stay healthy, though, and you have, like, a uh, creative coach, uh, I think it can happen, though. Hmm. Well, Dave, as always, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Tiff. The curtain has lifted on the New York City Marathon. Crashing world records have brought supersized attention for the grueling distance event. This Sunday, Kenyan former world record holder Bridget Kosgai will make her Big Apple debut after five previous major wins, while her fellow Kenyan Sharon Locati mounts a New York title defense. Yeah, I come here to run on my own base and on my own ship. So me, I'm feeling good to be with them. So that uh, uh, it will it will be the strong. The feel will be very strong when you are together with them. It's been a life changing. I it was a great experience, and I'm really excited that I'm back here again. And you know, looking forward for Sunday. When I look at the people that are seated ahead of me, I'm like, holy moly! You know, like their accolades are light years ahead of mine, um, but that's the beauty of New York, you know, is that you can kind of put all of that aside and anything can happen on the day. Among the athletes, Paris Jip Churcher made history when she broke the tape in Central Park months after picking up Olympic gold in Tokyo. 
On the men's side, a Tokyo Olympic silver medalist from the Netherlands and the 2022 world champion from Ethiopia are among the highlights. The marathon kicks off this coming Sunday at 8 a.m. Eastern Time. It will cover a total distance of 26.2 miles through all five boroughs of New York City. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.